SonicState.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, Sonic Talk Special. Today, we're talking to uh, composer, producer, orchestrator, programmer, musical director extraordinaire, um, Mr. Matt Robertson, who's currently musical director in Bjork's Biophilia Tour. Uh, how are you, Matt? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Where, whereabouts are you at the moment, then? Are you kind of off I'm duty? In, yeah, I'm in sunny Bedfordshire on a bit of downtime. Um, I'm, I'm living kind of in the middle of nowhere at the moment, but I've got a very nice studio, so that's the reason I live where I live. I see. And is that, is that are you when you say downtime? Is that actually really downtime? Because I, mean, I guess you're working. No, it's not. It's uh, it's downtime from from the biophilia project, and it's uptime for everything else. I'm sure because I mean I mean looking at your kind of your work schedule and you know just the stuff that you've been doing recently, and it's just an enormously broad and varied set of uh, tasks that you seem to accomplish. I mean, how do you kind of how do you juggle it all? How do you left brain, right brain it? Um, I. I... I've always tried to work on the assumption that you should say yes to everything and then worry about it later. Um, it, I, I, I kind of, I did a, a music and sound recording degree, which I, which is, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago now. Um, and I've been really fortunate since then to be, um, you know, to have done loads of really interesting and diverse projects, but kind of working on the basis that if you just decide that you're only going to do one thing, uh, it's very difficult to to find enough work to to keep all your bills paid. Um, so I'm I'm a bit of a jack of all trades and master of none, really. But um, it, it's it's kept me employed. I say it was a very dice man kind of philosophy there. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, and I I I don't want to give the impression that I <laughs> I just do everything because I because I sort of have to. I'm I mean, I'm genuinely interested in loads of different areas of the music industry and. Um, you know, I've, I've been through periods where I just wanted to be a jazz pianist or just wanted to do orchestrations or just wanted to be able to do an amazing mix of a record. Um, and luckily enough, I've kind of had a decent go at, at trying to do all of those things. Um, so and, and I think that that kind of in, in as the music industry gets more and more um, peculiar as as uh, <laughs> people try and um imagine up various ways of actually making revenue from it. I think it's it's more and more important that you can turn your hand to lots of different areas. You've been working lots of different threads. I mean, obviously, with uh, Marius de Vries on uh, record production, but also, more recently, feature films, and also uh, David Arnold, which I'm guessing is presumably fil- uh, feature films and, and orchestration. I mean, how how do they all fit together? How does that all fit together for you? Um, I, I tend to do lots of different... Uh, different, I sort of fit into different roles for different people, and I, I've sort of found over the years that um, uh, people kind of like it if they think that you do a particular thing, and then you, I, I kind of find you rarely get asked to do a different thing by that same person, but then somebody else might ask you to do something totally different. So um, uh, for David Arnold, I've I've done quite a lot of work um, just to just to backtrack a little, just because. You talked about orchestrating for David, which I don't actually do at all. Because um, no, he's orchestrate. the orchestrator. He's the orchestrator, of course. <laughs> Nick, well, no, he's the writer. Nicholas Dodd does all his um, orchestrations. Ah, okay. um, And and I um, I I I first did some work for David probably I don't know ten years ago on on one of the Bond films where um, I would get the handwritten orchestrations from Nicholas Dodd, 
and then program them all up in uh, Giga Studio as it was in those days. Um, and that would be the demo that would be played to the director. Um, and then, so because then I had like a logic session with all the MIDI of the demo of the queue in it, um, it seemed to make sense if then I was able to do some music edits as the picture changed. Um, and so, so I've done quite a few, well, worked on a few films with David where I've, I've kind of been music editing, but in the stage before it would actually go to a production music editor. Um, so as the picture edits get changed around, I move some bars and beats around in the logic song and then, uh, phone up the orchestrator and say, okay, we need to take a bar out here and add a few beats here. So it's, it's basically chasing the picture cuts. Um, and that's something totally different to what I've done for anyone else. So with um, Marist of Rees, it's much more about the actual sort of generation of the um, uh, kind of sounds, really. Um, so again, Marius is a writer, and I will usually do kind of guitar work and programming for him, and sometimes some orchestration. Um, so it's really different things for different people. Oh, interesting. And, and so tell me a little bit about this Bjork gig, because, I mean, this is something different again. I mean, it, this is, have you been, have, have you take, you've taken the, have you put together the show from a musically technical point of view? I mean, what's your kind of uh, role? No, I, there's been lots of various people involved in various stages with the Bjork show. I actually got involved in it um, because uh, I was doing the choir arrangements um, for some of the back catalogue songs. And also over the last year or so, sort of sporadically, I've been uh, writing out choir scores for um, choir parts that Bjork herself had put together. Bjork basically puts all of the musical ideas together very, um, you know, she's very specific about, about what she wants. Um, so in that role, really, I was literally just writing it down on paper so that people could sing it um, for, for, the, for the new material, that is. Um, and then it came around to doing some live material and uh, she asked me to work on some choir arrangements for, for a lot of the back catalogue songs as well. Um, All right, because she's got a very specific band and orchestration for this live show, right? Yeah, exactly. So at the moment, it's, uh, she's, she's got a 25-piece uh, female Icelandic choir that are with her um, and an amazing uh, hang player and drummer called Manu Delago mm-hmm. and me. And that's basically the, the setup. Um, <laughs> no pressure and, then. <laughs> no, no pressure at all. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of came to it from a, from a orchestration and arrangement point of view. Um, and then, uh, Damien Taylor, who is the, he's the main kind of, um, technical mastermind behind a lot of the project. Uh, he'd been working with Bjork for the last kind of three years on this project. Um, and it just so happened that he was expecting his second child, um, just as the, tour started in manchester so because i'd been somewhat involved with it up to that point um he asked me and bjork asked me if if i wanted to stand in for a while um and and that's how the whole tour thing came about so tell me a little bit about the. so have you been involved in you know you you've obviously done the the choir arrangements that sort of things but are you involved in putting the technology together that enables the show or are you kind of more using the technology that has been put together in a way that suits you know your working method and what Bjork wants, it, it's a bit of both, really. There, there's um, there's quite a few people involved, and I I spent um, two or three weeks in Montreal with Damien before the tour started, um, going through with him 
uh, we were just basically discussing ways that, that these shows could work. Um, there's another guy called Paul Eastman, who's a brilliant uh, keyboard tech and programmer um, who is um, uh, running a logic computer that's actually off stage. And he runs basically the, the sort of master MIDI clock and time code for the whole show. Right. Uh, so between him and me and Damien, we were basically coming up with ways where we were saying, okay, so for this particular track, um, we need to be able to send like a click track to the drummer. We need to send MIDI to some of the MIDI instruments. We need to send time code to the video. We need to send MIDI clock to the reactable. Uh, we need to send a bunch of program changes to the various other instruments. Um, and, and so basically for each song, we'd have a different scenario, um, which would mean the setup would need to be slightly different for each song. So on some songs, basically Paul hits go off stage and a bunch of other things go into action. Uh, some songs are completely free time. Some songs run from my computer's clock. Um, so we spent quite a lot of time just looking at each song and saying, okay, what needs to happen in this song? What's going to be the best way to achieve that? Um, and then coming up with ways of, of doing it. Um, it's an interesting and- process because, it, I, I mean, the one that you come up with at the time may not be the one that you end up with in the end because it obviously Absolutely. has to adapt. So, I mean, that's... Absolutely. That yeah, so it, it's very much, it's very much um, you know, we, we, we spent quite a lot of time planning all this stuff, really so that we could turn up in rehearsals um, in Iceland and, and have a, a kind of workable way to actually play a track through from the beginning to the end. Um, and sometimes it stayed like that, and quite often it, we just decided, you know what, that's completely the wrong approach, we need to do it differently. But it, it really, we just wanted to kind of go into rehearsals and be able to play everything somehow all the way through, because that at least gave us a starting point to, to wow. work. Sort of hairy. I mean, production rehearsals, particularly when you're in a tech point of view, uh, can be pretty sort of terrifying because there's all these people waiting for the, you know, for the one, two, three, four. Right, let's yeah, go. What's, yeah. what's the hold up? You know, it, it is. It's, yeah, it's kind of terrifying. But I mean, I think I mean, we're, we're lucky that we've got a really good team of people who are all totally on it. And and Bjork is kind of very used to the the sort of concept of running things with electronics and with computers. So is incredibly patient if things do go slightly wrong. Um, and and that's that's brilliant for all of us because it just means that basically we you know we all want to do our best. We all want to create an amazing show. Um, so you know sometimes sometimes there are delays and holdups and sometimes it goes a little wrong. But everyone's as, basically as trying it, to achieve the same goal. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 tell, so tell me a little bit about the core technology. So you're running on your kind of door setup. What are you running um, sort of ra- in your zone then? What happens in, around in you? My, my little corner of the stage is basically centred around a laptop that runs Ableton Live. Um, the main reason for me using Ableton is um, the, the really it's to do with the ease of assigning live controllers and doing it very quickly and and um having that on a song per song basis um i i'm in in the studio i'm much more a logic and pro tools person but um logic for live playback stuff um is brilliant in some respects and completely awful in other respects and one of those one of those awful aspects is is setting up control surfaces um and ableton live is just it's brilliant at that it's so quick it's so intuitive and you just do it and it's great um the the uh, Paul Eastman who is running the clock off stage he uses a logic machine um, because again that's he he's got a slightly different set of priorities to me so it made much more sense for him to use logic. 
So um, is he firing off the so, master program changes and any sort of midi- exactly, yeah, and, that sort of stuff? Uh, time code and clock. Um, and um, so yeah, I've got a I've got a laptop using um, Ableton Live. I've got a um, Novation Remote Zero controller. Yeah. Um, a Lima touchscreen controller. Uh, Chaos Pad. Um, couple of synths and the Reactable. That's an intro reactable. And that, is that something that you've not come across before? Or have you had to learn how to use it for this purpose? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd seen it on the last tour that Bjork did, but um, I spent some time with Damien kind of figuring out how it works. Um, and that, that's an interesting one as well, because it's, it's, um, it's kind of, it, it's very, it's kind of very specific as to um, the way that you kind of have to approach things in order for it to kind of behave properly, if you like. Right, yeah. and, and sometimes those very specific things are completely the opposite of, of how you want it to work. Um, <laughs> and so we've been really lucky. There's a, a wonderful guy called Gunter Geiger, which I think is probably the best name I've ever come across. Um, and he is uh, basically responsible for the reactable and the code in it. Um, and he's just been really helpful throughout this whole process because I can basically get on Skype with him and say, so, Gunter, what I'm trying to do is play this loop that's eight beats long at the same time as this loop that's nine and a half beats long, and I need it so that that one syncs and this one doesn't, and I can move that around there. And he kind of looks at me and goes, why? And I'm like, well, that's what we're trying to do. And then he goes, okay, cool. And then he'll, he'll like, code away for a bit and send me an update, and, and then it's all done. Um, so it, it's brilliant in the respect that we've got really good contacts with the guy that's writing the code for it, and he basically... <laughs> kind of makes it does what makes it well, you're like a walking work. promo for uh for, for the whole product i'd imagine as well because I mean, well i hope so yeah i think i think it's good exposure for the product um and there, there's um there's a few there's a few people and there are a few of them about at the moment but i think i i, I think um we've certainly got the the sort of biggest forum for its exposure so mm. um so he's been brilliant really helpful Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, um, and just going back to live a second, I mean, are you using that as well because you can change arrangements on the fly more quickly? I mean, is it alive in that sense? Do the songs breathe and live and reorder and, and, and extend and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, again, it's it's kind of that's kind of worked out on a song per song basis. Um, I mean, some of them are very much set in stone. Um, yeah. And part, part of that is, is because we've got these amazing um, MIDI driven pipe organs and the uh, MIDI driven gamelan celeste instrument um and we decided quite early on that the the sort of simplest way to integrate those would be to you know run midi tracks to control them but those would be actually fixed tracks um part part of that is is also because the 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 actual sort of arrangements that they're playing um uh uh, uh, based on transcriptions from like orchestral charts and string charts and things um where it would it would be really difficult to sort of divide those up into into like say four or eight bar right, loops to trick yeah, yeah. live. So and you could probably do it, but it wouldn't really give the sense of the shape of the song. So for those ones, it made sense just to run the MIDI track, um, and therefore for those songs, the the song structure is pretty much fixed. Um, some of the other songs that are a bit more kind of um, like electronic music based, I guess. Um, we've got a bit more freedom about it. Certainly like the, the tracks on the reactable um, are, are definitely, you know, 
they're, they're different every night and we just wait and see what happens <laughs> so what are the challenges of uh of running say you know i mean you've got things like army of me and you know the big some of the big kind of uh, bjork numbers that presumably she does some of that into the set or is it pri- you know how do you orchestrate with what you've got around that is it is it uh has that been much of a challenge or is it fairly straightforward um i think i basically i i spent quite a lot of time in rehearsals with bjork just trying to come up with ideas with her as to um uh you know the best way to approach some of the older songs and a lot of the time we just try stuff out and and you know prepare it as as best we could and then play it through and then Bjork would kind of decide you know what that's not really going to work in the context of this live show Mm. um and then we'd move on and do something else and and that would work so we we prepared much more than we're actually using but then that also gives us the opportunity to to drop it in later in the tour you know uh, and sort of spice things up a bit um and oh, it, so it's an ongoing you know you might bring songs in kind of en route as it were yeah absolutely and on, on a on a kind of show per show basis um uh quite often there'll be like another number added that we just run in the sound check and make sure it's all good and then but we do, we do wow. it that night. Um, <laughs> wow, that's that's it, it, it keeps things exciting. Yes, um, I mean because the I other think, yeah sorry carry on. I, I think Bjork was quite keen on this show um, that it, it was it's a very different show setup and it's a very different kind of vibe to to the last tour to the Volta tour, which was uh, as I understand it kind of based around being a a um a, you know a, a festival show and you know big venues big songs. Um, and th- this one, uh, partly because of the nature of the music, maybe, but I think more so because of the, uh, the way that Bjork wanted to, to present the ideas. It's it's very it's kind of um, I don't want to say smaller scale because it's not any less powerful or impactful. Right. Um, it's kind of designed around a, a more intimate setup. So right. I mean, the shows we're doing in Manchester were I think two thousand capacity. Right. Um, which which is you know a completely different vibe from forty thousand people at a festival. Are you doing those? Because um, you did multiple nights there. Is that the way? Because I mean, I imagine it's a hell of a setup for this. Because you're doing it in the round as well, aren't you? So yeah, yeah. So I think I think there were seven shows in Manchester, um, and um, luckily we we were able to set up in the venue and just stay in that venue. Um, so so uh, the crew only had to kind of get in and out once, which was nice. Um, what a luxury yeah, yeah absolutely i think they they were very happy about that um so yeah it, it's very much set set up around that um concept and also you know, being in the round it means that nobody is very far away from the stage at all um and and the fact that and i think probably the the audience in manchester was maybe i don't know 12 or 14 people deep at most so even the people at the back were really quite close and and Bjork were just wander around the stage and kind of sing in people's faces which, which was pretty astonishing and and the the reactions that that um that we got were were amazing um and she's i mean Bjork's such an astonishing live performer that i think you know she can make anything work but from, from well, my it's, point it's, of, it's an interesting concept isn't it because i mean stadium and large gigs are all about a massive projection of ego and movement Whereas like this, you can just get full on, it's, it's, it's almost sort of unfettered, but uh, also less theatrical, perhaps, because you can just be more you, I suppose, at that, at that sort of closeness and that velocity. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not really sure about that that um, difference, to be honest, because I mean, I'm, from my personal point of view, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't sort of, I don't have to sort of project myself really, you know, yeah, that, it, the, the center of it is is down to Bjork, and and you know, she's, uh, you know, mastered that whole thing and has been doing it for, you know, years and years and years. Um, but I, I think it, I, I mean, you know, I, I. My impression of it is that she kind of wanted to do something totally different to the last tour, and so right. doing, um, you know, two thousand capacity venues in the round and keeping it all quite intimate just gives the whole thing a completely different feel. Um, and so to to kind of go back to your uh, previous question, that that in a way kind of determines some of the song choices and and the way some of the songs are arranged. Um, Having said that, on the last night we did totally kick off and play some of the big numbers, and it was brilliant, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think that, I think that is uh, that was all kind of the concept of, of her idea, really. Mm, interesting. I mean, tell me a little bit more about the technical setup because obviously you've got this massively wide range of dynamic instruments because you've got a twenty-five piece choir, right? You've yep. also got the uh, gamelest, which is kind of well, it's like a cel- a celeste type instrument. You've got yep. these these interesting. Uh, I'm not sure what the pendulum harps. I don't know what the if the right name for them is. Yeah, I, I think they are called pendulum harps. Wow, um, fantastic! And that, they, and that was that was the most incredible thing for me. I and mean, seeing those set up was I I just couldn't really believe it. I've never seen anything like it. And the the two guys that came over to set them up literally like got to Manchester with their um, you know, shipping trunks of gear, and were there for you know, like eighteen hours a day for about five or six days, running up to the first night, prepping it and making sure it all worked. Because as far as I know, they they'd never fully tested it. They just came oh, up with this design idea, and Bjork was totally into the idea and um, spec'd it all out. But literally, it, it was a brand new idea that had never really been tested. So they were really you know, um, on the edge. On the, I, can yeah, ima- right, I mean, right I can't imagine how, because the dynamics of that mix of things, because you've got these very powerful electronics and you run a couple of synthesizers that are capable of huge sonic variation as well. I mean, how does it all fit together? Um, well, part of it is, I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's almost like, um, you know, if you're, if you're mixing a track, part of the, you know, part of the, um, trick of getting a great mix is having a an arrangement that works and not having 10 different sounds that oh, just right. don't yeah, fit of so yeah. part of part That's of it really. is that so for example i'm the pendulum the track that um the pendulum harp is playing is only the pendulum harp and bjork so it's not in uh, for yeah. that track is not actually competing with anything so um i think that means that um like you say oh, there are you know, many and very dynamic instruments but that means that um Throughout the set, um, there there are these massive changes in in tone color and sound and volume as well. It's, it was a, a very dynamic show, going from like the massive full on electronica tracks to these really quite tiny and intimate tracks, like with the pendulum harp, which is you know it's quite it's it's quite an imposing big instrument, but fundamentally it's a kind of I don't know eighteen inch long piece of nylon string that is being mm. plucked. So it's you know it's a, it's a it's a very small sound, um, 
but part a, a lot of those challenges were dealt with by the uh, monitor and front of house guy, the, the guys that did an amazing yeah, that job. Must be a hell of a job. Are they? Do you know? Are they using Digidyne uh, venue stuff, or are they? Uh, uh, no, they're using the um, uh, Digico desks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I was amazed by. I'd never seen them before, but I've 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 never seen a desk that was so brilliantly designed from a user point of view, and the way that all the sort of multi-assignable knobs change color depending on what function they are and you can just look at it and kind of know instantly what stuff is doing i i thought it was an amazing desk and dave bracy who's the front of house guy absolutely swears by them um so a, a lot of those a lot of those sort of dynamic and sound challenges were were met partly by um bjork putting the arrangements together where that was going to work uh and partly with the with dave and finna uh the front of house and monitor guy um just being brilliant basically and, and fitting it all together. You, you tailor a lot of the bass lines uh, for the Bjork show sort of per venue so you tweak them yeah. so that you can get yeah. them to be the right amount of energy down and that's a really interesting approach is that something you've always done or just something you discovered for this? No um, I, th- I mean that, that was completely new to me I mean basically um, uh, it, it sort of became apparent that I was going to be playing quite a lot of the bass lines on the Moog um, and so I basically um, made sounds I, I made a bunch of patches on the moog which were near as damn it identical to the sound on the record and you know i was listening to them on good speakers and i've got a sub here so i was pretty happy that they were the same thing but then when you play them in a venue the whole nature of bottom end just com- is a totally different beast mm. and so and like, like what you're saying with the minimo i i'd play like the bass line on i don't know um yoga or something and it would just completely obliterate everything else um, because when it's playing at, at gig level through subs, the, the whole balance of energy is is so different. And we ended up like literally on on like most of the songs that I'm playing bass on, I'm literally playing a sort of filtered triangle wave, one oscillator, um, with a little bit of release on it. It's like the most boring bass sound on in the world. But when you play it at gig level, it it's, it just sounds it. massive. And and le- you know leaves a lot of space for other things above it as well. Um, the only downside of that is when um, uh, Dave Bracy this week has been running off a whole bunch of um, sort of slightly more controlled desk mixers um, for Bjork to listen to all the live shows. And he phoned me up and he was like, "Yeah, see the problem with this like tweaking the bass sound thing is it means they sound rubbish when you listen to it on a CD." <laughs> ah, yes, I suppose that's the uh, that could be. What you actually need is to run a. Um... You you run a a mix minus and then a separate track for the original bass, so you can just lay it down on top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be. Uh, oh, yeah, that's. But that is. So, are you are you emasculating them as well? Do they have to have a lot of bottom end rolled off them, or are you just kind of reducing the amount? No, of- it's it's. Um, I'm not taking any bottom end off. It's really just creating space so that it. So the bass lines are really all about the sub, um, and and the sort of. 100 200 hertz thing that i guess is usually what you hear the baseline doing on a in a studio somehow just seemed to take care of itself um mm. and that that may have been very specific to because the, the venue we were playing in manchester wasn't really a venue it was just a warehouse that we put a pa in um so you know the acoustics were kind of peculiar um and it just seemed that you know, if if I played sort of G two below middle C, the roof rafters would resonate and bits would fall off, and you know, <laughs> it was you know, all stuff like that. Uh, it was pretty crazy. But literally, you could just play the simplest sort of 
triangle tone with the low pass filter on it and somehow you sort of hear all these harmonics and things happen anyway mm. um it was very peculiar but they I mean, the, the front of house guy said that that it was not unusual to do that um I've, n- but, I've never. Uh, yeah, I, it I, seems I, like I, such an obvious approach, but one I've never really heard. And that you're using what the Moog? It's a Moog Voyager. Moog Voyager, right? Oh, yeah, interesting. Which is, um, yeah, I've got a love hate relationship with it because it does sound good, but it's there's no pop pickup on it. You can't, as far as I can tell, you can't set it so that if you recall a patch where the knobs are in a different place to where they physically are, there isn't there isn't a setting where you turn the knob until it gets to the point. Where the oh, I'm, well, I just reviewed the Moog uh, Slim Fatty, and that's oh, yeah. got a mode in it that you can. So I would be very surprised if there wasn't a mode in there. I well, I can't find it. Maybe there's a firmware update. It might be. Yeah, they that. do iOS updates all the time. Not yeah. the sort of thing you want to do in the middle of a tour, though, is it? No, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit terrified of doing anything with it. Wow. Well, it sounds like a lot of them. What What are the upcoming dates? I mean, what's how long is the tour going to last, and uh, where are you going? Just to give um, a quick. It's, it's it's an ongoing thing right now. Um, you might have to edit this section. I forewarn you, uh, because right now, uh, I don't actually know. <laughs> when, do you know when your next gig is? Uh, the next gigs. I'm just having a look. Uh, we are playing a festival on September the 11th. Um, so we're headlining festival on the Sunday night. Um, and then, uh, we're doing a, uh, another kind of, um, more intimate residency in Reykjavik for, I think three or four weeks. Oh, um, that's going to be great. Yeah, that's, that's going to be great. And that, that all sold out already. And I think, I think that's, that's either part of the airwaves festival or it's like a forerunner to it. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. And then there's a whole host of other things that are kind of in the offing for next year, um, which are all kind of under wraps at the moment. Just want to say thank you very much to our sponsors who are Yamaha.co.uk through YamahaDownload.com and YamahaSynth.com. They want to tell you about the N-series mixers available as an N8 8-channel and an N12 12-channel. Both models feature new mic preamps, N-characterised N-series mic preamps, which are apparently very, very good. Uh, They've got red Rev X effects processing, sweet spot morphing compressor on each channel, advanced integration with Cubase, high Z input for direct guitar or bass recording, wide ranging musical EQ, fully integrated pro level monitoring suite, and auxiliary sends for artist monitoring or external processing, dry or wet monitor control. And these have a Firewire interpa- interface, 24 bit 96K digital quality. Best place to check them out if you get head over to yamahadownload.com, you can find the location of a bunch of pulse stores which are kind of yamaha stores within stores in the uk where they should have them in stock and you can run some audio through them check out the eq check out the preamps listen to the compressors see how they fit into your setup alternatively if you're in the us uh, head to a major dealers that uh, stock yamaha and ask them to take a look at the n or n8 or n12 series mixers once again we thank yamaha for their continued sponsorship of the show so tell me i mean we'll go back to sort of some of your other um, strings to your bow what what do you do in your downtime? I mean, you know, what, what's the other project? You've presumably got other projects running concurrently that you have to, um, you know, devote some time to. I mean, what are you, what are you working on currently? Uh, right now, I'm, this very second, I'm doing a, uh, a short film for a friend of mine in New York, doing music for a short film um, for a friend of mine in New York, um, which I am about two-thirds of the way through, um, and uh, trying, to, trying to create something out of um, 
just uh, modular synths and weird noises um because uh, that's kind of what i'm into at the moment ah, um so that man after my me. own heart so are you using <laughs> is that a virtual is that virtual synthesis or you actually got a uh, bunch no, of no, hardware I've got, there but a, a whole bunch of random things here um oh do tell us <laughs> um well i i I got into the. I, I've been. I'm quite a recent convert to the Eurorack modular uh, thing. Yeah. Um. So in the last probably I don't know 18 months or so, I've got slightly addicted to it. Um. As <laughs> as as people do, I've heard. Um. So I, I I basically I start I started off on this because I've got a um I've got a Korg MS10 amongst other things, and I just I love it to bits. And I'd always wanted an MS20, and the price of them just seemed so ridiculous that I thought, well, I could try basically making my own one out of euro modules and i know it's not going to sound like an ms20 but i'll have some of the functionality and i might get something interesting out of it um so i started to i started putting together um basically a euro modular ms20 that's an um, interesting approach well it was it yeah and it i mean the euro stuff it's not cheap but if you put together like a two oscillator monosynth it's cheaper than buying an ms20 um yes. So that's where I started, and then it, then it became very apparent that actually this stuff is highly addictive, and um, and once you start, it's very difficult to stop. Um, and I tried, I tried, I thought I was being really sensible because I actually made myself a nice oak case, which was going to fit just enough modules yeah, to make. How foolish! Very, I know, I know, it's a, a schoolboy mistake. Um, so so that's where it started, and then then I've got a couple more six U cases which are slowly filling up with bits and bobs. But um, yeah, it really just, and I've I've always been I've always been a fan of of um, not necessarily analog synths, but just synths like physical synths with yeah. knobs and feeders on them. Just I I mean I don't know whether it was you know just how I was brought up or whatever, but I just find it so much quicker for me to get the kind of sounds I want and just experiment stuff with stuff if I've got a synth with a bunch of knobs on it than if I have to go through menus and you know mouse around on it. Um, so um, you know, I've got I've got a uh, access virus which I love, which is you know not analog, but it's, for me still fits into what I like about synths, which is being able to tweak stuff really quickly. Yeah, um, very tactile. So yeah, exactly. So so I've been I've been slowly collecting some of the um, modular things, um, and and uh, yeah, so I, I did the I did the sort of MS20 thing, which is nothing like an MS20 at all, but it's great fun. Uh, and then I decided that it would be that. The next thing I should try and make was an ARP twenty six hundred. Okay, <laughs> so I'm working on that at the moment. It's kind of getting there. It's really interesting. But I just, I'd never, I've never, I've never owned an ARP. I'm totally going off on a synth tangent now. But that's anyway. absolutely fine. I, I've never owned an ARP, but I did. But Marius de Vries has got one actually, and I played his once, and it just struck me of what a brilliant design it is because, you know, you've got you've basically got a a, a sort of um, modulation fader. For every input and output, but it's also totally patchable. So you've got you've got like a fader that goes to oscillator one for LFO and envelope and noise and random generator and oscillator two cross mod. And so so you know without patching anything, you've got this incredible control over everything, yeah. um, which I'd never really seen before in a synth because you know if you look at like a mini MOOC, brilliant as they are, it's actually really limited into what modulation you can do with it. Um, so I started put, to put together this uh, modular where I've basically got like a mixer next to every single module in it and every other module 
goes into the, is is kind of wired around the back into that mixer. So oh, that, I see. I, so you you and that's for CV mixing and that sort of thing. Exa- yeah, exactly. So so I've got a CV mixer next to each oscillator and each filter and each BCA, um, and I've I've wired it all up in the back, um, which is kind of completely going against the sort of purest modular route. But I just love the fact that you can really quickly just grab five pots and turn them and you get something completely bonkers out of it. Um, and that's what really struck me about the 2600 was that it was just so quick to set up these really quite complicated modulation routings. Um, so, yeah, that's my, that's my latest little project. That sounds great. Right. I, I have to give you a recommendation because it's something I just reviewed because we oh, also have just purchased a uh, – we've got a, a, a monorocket case, which we've got an, an, a basic set of synths synth yeah. modules that will enable us to review any other module because we've got enough to be going oh, okay, yeah. and uh, the first thing i reviewed was the expert sleepers uh es3 ah, yeah, no, I, do, yeah, do you I'm, use I, that have you, have you I, that is an all it's just incredible that whole i love it I, I um i got i and the, again the reason i got that is part of my similar thing with getting the modules in the first place instead of an ms20 is i looked at i've got like four or five analog synths and i was looking at middying up the modular stuff and Basically, I looked at the price of getting a whole bunch of Kenton boxes, and it was going to be twice as much as buying the Expert Sleeper software and getting a Motu interface off eBay. So I got a Motu interface and got the Expert Sleeper stuff, hooked it all up, and it's brilliant. Mm. Um, and I've got, a, I've got a logic template that's basically got like a, a CV and a gate and a um, modulation channel plugged into each synth. Um, and that completely revolutionized how I integrate the analog stuff and and how much I use it as well. It is um, interesting, isn't it? I mean, the thing that I found. I mean, I'm going off on a tangent now, but the, because of the the way that the 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 way that these software envelopes and LFOs are implemented, you can almost do without them in your rack because they are so I, versatile. Yeah, exactly. And and I actually I um, it took me a while to because I I I sort of got them as a replacement for uh sort of normal midi to cv converters so i'd actually used it quite a while before i took any notice of the envelopes and stuff at all but and the envelopes are are, are so tweakable like way more tweakable than you would get out of mm. uh analog or at least the analog envelopes that i've seen um and i think yeah i think everyone's got different opinions on on how computer-based things should be but i mean the way i see it as long as things are accessible and you can make sounds that you like out of it then it really doesn't matter and i I tend to prefer the the sort of knobby synths but you know i use a computer every day and it'd be stupid to sort of refuse blankly to use any technology that comes up from a philosophical point just because it's a computer exactly um and i think that i that that's um that's a, a sort of attitude that i think is really great that that i've hopefully sort of picked up a bit from bjork about which is that you know, much as she's got these amazing acoustic instruments in the Biophilia show, their their integration with technology is is uh, is kind of really refreshing. I think because she's so open to to any new avenue, but also so open to combining them in ways uh, which which some people might not. You know, sure. um, so so I think that's really refreshing as well. But yeah, I'm 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 trying to I'm trying to sort of have this utopian. <laughs> everything on the computer and everything on the analog synths at the same time. Well, that <laughs> sort of takes me into perhaps some other areas of your work because obviously, uh, I mean, rules and uh, rigidity, I mean, you're classically trained. Your orchestration work, I mean, is set around very, very rigid rules generally. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm making some assumptions here, obviously. Yeah, um, kind of. I mean, 
I don't know if they're. I don't know if they're kind of rigid rule. There are certainly. Um, there are certainly things that that you like. I'm talking about orchestration specifically. Um, there are certainly things that you would do and not do, but mm. they're they're really they're really more to do with um, kind of how much time you've got, really. And I I think it's specifically of things like you know um, there are certain ways to write out music that makes it easier to read than another way. And okay. so you could write out a piece of music in three different ways where it would sound exactly the same, but one of them, a session player would be able to play spot on first time. And the other one, they might look at it and go, oh, I don't quite understand what this bit is. Do you know, if you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, uh, and so those are kind of, those kind of rules, if you like, but, but they're not rules that you can't break. They're just rules that on a particular occasion you would choose to follow because for that scenario, it's going to make that thing so much easier. Um, and and with I mean, with orchestration, there there are certainly um, kind of patterns that you could follow, which make things sound a particular way, which mm. are kind of rules, I guess. I suppose you know, they're, they're set. They're set. I'm just wondering in terms of because orchestration is, uh, I, as I said, it's like a rigid art form, I suppose, in in the in the methodology. And does it hinder other areas of music creation? Do you, I mean, because you're using that and other parts of your music creativity, do you have to sort of unlearn and try and forget the the stuff that you were obviously taught to, to be able to uh, get to the level of expertise that you already have? Um, no, well, funnily enough, I think the, the area that I find most challenging in that respect is actually more to do with like engineering rather than the sort of music side of things. Um, and um, I remember on the, uh, I, I, on the degree that I did, I remember the, the very first lecture that I went to where we were actually talking about audio engineering. And the guy that took the lecture said, uh, like, good afternoon, everybody. You'll never listen to music in the same way again. And he was right. And I kind of regret it because um, we were kind of taught to analyze uh, sort of music as well as uh, production techniques in a way that I found quite difficult to not be kind of not formulaic, but you kind of got this idea in your head that if like your drum kit didn't sound like this or your bass guitar didn't sound like this, then it was wrong. Um, and, and I think that's massively damaging because it kind of, it just ignores a whole bunch of other variables. So from that respect, I've, I've kind of, you know, I've been trying to unlearn a few things, but yeah, that's no disrespect to the course. Mm. That's just my, my, you know, my personal, uh, opinion of, of the way that I kind of, took information on and i was kind of going oh right so this has to be like this and this has to be like this um and of course that's just all rubbish because nothing has to be like anything um but um i but i as i say and for me personally that that's much more from a from a kind of engineering point of view than a music point of view um and i i think i've always felt a little bit sort of freer in that respect well, it's interesting because you've got sort of a massively wide range of portfolio work. I'm just looking, you worked on The Streets, Prodigy, uh, and then more recently the the Recording Engineer, which has been much more of a jazzy sort of almost purist kind of sound to it. I mean, that's sort of because there is the holy grail, isn't there, of capturing the jazz trio in the, in the, perfect, <laughs> in the perfect way. And I did hear a little bit of uh, kind of, oh, there's a bit of Miles Davis vibe to some of this. Just And I wasn't thinking necessarily the music, but just the, the construction of... The recording, perhaps, would that be yeah, fair that, to that's, say? That's really interesting. Um, I, I, 
I've I've been really fortunate to know um quite a few uh jazz musicians that I, that I've kind of known since I was you know 15 16 um that that are now doing really amazing things um and I recorded a couple of albums um with with a few of them over the last two or three years um but the the last thing that I did uh was with a band called Phrenesis and I, I recorded uh two nights of gigs that they did um in Camden and then uh, made that into an album which is that became... the alive album yes exactly oh didn't um, i didn't i didn't ah okay i didn't realize it was live that's interesting ah, yes is that that was um a uh, live recording and um and that got nominated for a mobo last year which was brilliant um and uh yeah that was really because it's it, interesting you say about the sort of holy grail of capturing the the jazz trio um, and i've never quite thought of it like that but i i do and this is sort of completely contradicting my um, what I just said about <laughs> rules. Like in my head, I've got this sort of utopian sound of what a jazz trio should sound like. Um, and um, I, I was, well, that's certainly the closest I've got to it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, that's um, interesting because, I mean, those guys, I, I, I'm afraid I'm not a SWAT on it, so I don't remember the names. But, I mean, the, those kind of Blue Note recordings and the Miles Davis stuff, the early, you know, the, the kind of blue, that sort of thing, that is almost, yeah. that's like a template for the 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 classic kind of 50s jazz sound, which has been, you know, when it gets too clean and too... Ah, too crystal. It just doesn't sound right to me. It sounds wrong somehow. Yeah. Well, I. Yeah. I mean, I. I it's. Um. Yeah. I. I know what you mean. I. I. I the. The recording that I did of that Phrenesis gig was. De- you know. Didn't. I'm. You know. I'm not even. I'm not going to suggest for a moment that it sounded like a fifties Miles Davis recording, and I, and I wasn't trying to. But for me, it's for me, it's kind of more about. Um. Uh just coming up with a way of trying to capture a performance in a way that gives a really good um, reflection and impression of the performance and of the gig, Mm. um, which, which, you know, is, is sometimes a totally different thing from being the best recording. Uh, So how did you approach it? I mean, what was, what was the technology you used to capture that? I mean, just to get a bit uh, back into the tech side of it again. Um, I, I used uh, three Focusrite Octopreys. And um, a bunch of not particularly posh microphones, and a Fireface eight hundred and a laptop. Um, uh, into Pro Tools or into Logic or into, uh, into Logic. Um, the only the only reason I did that was because the, at the time I did it, it was pre Pro Tools, you know, Pro Tools nine native. Right. Um, I was trying to get all the stuff into the boot of my car, so I didn't want to take a Pro Tools rig. Um, so, so at that time, Logic seemed sensible because you can just record twenty four tracks into it and do it all natively and it, it you know all behaves itself um and and i'd i'd sort of ummed and ahed about um you know hiring in some really great mic frees and and microphones and then i just kind of thought you know what no um so i i did it with um you know all you know very reasonably priced gear there was nothing super esoteric there um and and yeah, it was completely a sort of lesson for me because that is by quite a margin the recording that I've done recently that I'm most happy with. And of course, it's 99% to do with the people you're recording and nothing to do with, you know, being able to put a microphone in the right place. Because mm. Frank, you've got an amazing drummer. You can put a microphone pretty much anywhere and it will sound amazing. 
Um, <laughs> well, that's true. Did, did you uh, did, did you mic it up separately from the actual uh, re- reinforcement stuff for the gig, or was that not? Uh, the, the, there was actually very little reinforcement for it. So I think the only reinforcement was on the piano, uh, and I think there was a DI bass. Um, so so I wasn't having to compete with like two totally set different sets of microphones. Right. Um, so. Um, I had uh, what did I have? I had a bass DI and a four two one on the bass, right close in. Um, some send, uh, some AKG four one fours on the uh, piano, four one four overheads on the drums, and D sevens on the on the kit. It was like it was the most standard recording that you could possibly have done. And 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 I just I kind of walked away from it and went. Right, that's the last time I'm going to look at an expensive mic free because it's just you know the the different. Oh, well, I mean, it's about in my the, yeah the energy. Own, yeah, exactly. In my own humble opinion, if I'd had ten times the amount of you know price worth of gear, it wouldn't have made it ten times a better recording. It might have made it. It might have made it even twenty percent better. But but the eighty percent is the important bit, and that's coming from the musicians. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, it was it was a bit of a lesson for me, really, that whole experience. <laughs> That's very interesting. I mean, do you find because you're working with these uh, uh, other guys, you know, uh, Marius and uh, and David and, and various people that he ha- that he's using? Do you find you're sort of picking up stuff from them? Because I mean, presumably they are exposed to the real high end stuff. I mean, do you? Oh yeah, f- absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, you you, you always well, ho- hopefully I, I pick up something from somebody all the time. Um, and uh but but at the same time i think it, it, it's all it's all varying levels i mean if you're working on a major hollywood film soundtrack then you're going to go into a massive studio that's got all the high-end gear and it will sound amazing but that doesn't mean that at some point the person that's actually writing the music isn't you know sitting in their tiny overheating studio using a laptop with a hard drive that's full up and not enough ram you know it's, it's, so every every stage of the process you know however sort of grandiose the project might seem at every stage everyone's using all sorts of different levels of gear and sometimes it's really expensive and really high end and and you you hope that when it is like that it's like that for a reason uh, and sometimes it's it's completely the opposite mm. um and and i think you know we're all trying to, and anyone that is involved in sort of writing and production of some sort is always trying to find like their own best way of doing things. And everyone's workflow is is different, and everyone kind of enjoys doing things in a different way. Um, so I, I think, and and I think a lot of that is down to the technology, and and very much influences people's choice of the the technology that they use. Also, like to thank another sponsor. That's MacProVideo.com, a place where you can get some great tutorials on a lot of major doors and other software. Uh, Logic, Pro Tools, Cubase, Reason, Ableton Live, plus specific plugins like Melodyne, Isotope, Stutter Edit, Mainstage, Native Instruments, Contact, including scripting, Sibelius, Redmatica, Keymap, Omnisphere, and Trillion. There's a whole ton of stuff. And if uh, you're also interested in getting to video, you can have Final Cut Pro and Final Cut Pro X tutorials. There's a whole lot of stuff there. If you want to try them out, head over to sonicstate.com slash MPV. By clicking on that link we can save you an extra 20 percent on individual course downloads so please do check out mac pro video sonicstate.com forward slash mpv and save 20 percent on some great video tutorials for contemporary software door plug-in instruments and all kinds of stuff i mean going to 
back to the orchestration again. I mean, obviously, lots of people have different ways. You mentioned that you're a programmer for Giga Sampler. When you're on an orchestration gig and you're working in your you know your garret, kind of fleshing yeah. things out, what is it that you're using? Um, I use uh, basically. I'm, I've uh, I, I spent years and years using Giga Studio. So this is going uh, going back like ten, twelve years when, as far as I'm aware, that like literally the only option of being able to run like quite big orchestral sample libraries uh, was to use external Giga Studio PCs and then yeah. stream the audio into your door. So I, I had a couple of Giga Studio PCs that had, wait for it, four gig of RAM each. And that was like, that was massive. Um, and, and I used those for quite a long time just because it seemed that it, it, it seemed to take quite a long time for the sort of native contact side of things all running in one computer to, to actually be stable and workable. And then um, obviously, as as that became more stable and workable, I guess we're going back sort of three or four years now. Um, I started to migrate it all into Contact. So I converted all my Giga Studio sample libraries into Contact and XS24. Um, and now I'm doing everything inside one computer. Um, so Contact is my main sampler for, for streaming orchestral libraries. Um, so and, does that mean you've been through the incredibly painful process of the transition to 64-bit and getting enough RAM so that it'll work? Because Logic's always been a little bit clunky when it yeah, comes to that. Yeah, it's um, it, I the, on on I can't remember which project it was a, a couple of projects ago with with Marius DeVries, um, me and him and another guy that works for him called Eldad. We we spent ages trying to figure out the best way of doing this. Um, and I think this was just at the point when Logic went 64-bit, and so we'd set up these massive test sessions with like hundreds of MIDI tracks in them and run it for a while and, and figure out like how much RAM and DSP we were using. If we had like a separate instance of contact for every instrument or an instance of contract with 16 instruments loaded in each one, or, you know, tried right, to come right. up with all these different scenarios um, to come up with what at that time we thought was the best way of doing it. Um, and, and of course you do that. And then six months later, there's an update of something and it all changes again. Um, so you're sort of constantly chasing the, the, the best way, if there is a best way. Um, but right now I'm using, uh, uh, like my, my sort of orchestral template is based around seven or eight instances of contact that have got, I don't know, 10 or 12 instruments in each instance. Um, and that seems for me to be the sort of most DSP and RAM. And is that something friendly. you're, you're running, um, presumably that's going to be running on a Mac pro, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it is, but I, I've recently been trying to. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm trying to make everything fit in my laptop I, over about the last six months. Um, partly because I know that I'm going to be travelling around quite a bit for the next. Well, I don't know quite a while. Um, but partly because I I think um, uh, I think it's going to be increasingly important to be able to just work anywhere. Um, and and I think being t- you know I I love being in a the controlled environment of a studio and having all my gear where it is but at the same time it's it's sort of massively liberating to be able to just turn up at an artist's house with effectively a full programming rig in your bag um and and do you know proper high level work and and not have to sort of compromise on it and say oh i'm only doing this on my laptop so we can't do x y and z and then fix it later um i i don't think there's there aren't too many reasons now why why you can't just do you know pretty much everything on a laptop with a little portable interface so i'm i'm trying to migrate at the moment from 
having my Mac Pro set up, which has got everything on it how I want it to be, but then also trying to consider that, you know, if there are things that I can only do on my Mac Pro, I'll sort of think twice about doing them because I want to be able to have the freedom to just stick everything on my laptop and, and work on it somewhere else. And how's that process going? I mean, you know, that's going to be it's fairly pretty good. You, it's, what, it's, are you using an, a core, an i5, i7? or you? Uh, this is, I'm just having a look because I can't remember. This is a uh, 2.4 i5 laptop. Uh, so it's, it's not the newest, newest one. It's the generation before that. Uh-huh. Um, and it's got 8 gig of RAM in it. And I can, I can broadly run, like, pretty much all of the orchestral templates will run okay in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, weirdly, the biggest limitation I've got at the moment is that it's a 15-inch screen, um, and you just can't fit enough stuff on it. Um, well, you, you could, I'm sh- the, the te- the, yeah, the, we, we just bought a bunch of 24-inch uh, uh, t- uh, 1080 screens here and that runs yeah. fine off my i mean i've got a couple of generations back but i'm not using it so much for music production but that's fine right. it runs it runs a massive screen no problem yeah yeah i, I what i and I, I was lucky on the uh, on the bjork shows i'm lucky enough to have a like super top end 17 inch laptop and, and i couldn't quite believe having spent like quite a few months looking at ableton live on that and then i opened it on my 15 inch and i was like hang on i can't see half the stuff and then, and I, I honestly thought that it was like zoomed in or something. Um, but the 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 17s are just amazing. I mean, you you can, and it, as far as I'm concerned, you can you can just work on that 17 inch screen and pretty much do everything. Um, I'm I'm trying to get to the point where I can basically like fit everything that I need in uh, a carry on bag that will fit in a airplane overhead locker. So what would that be? That'd be the laptop. Uh, what's the audio interface you're going to use? Um, I've got a RME baby face. Um, Oh, is that the Which, one that fits in a PCI Express, or is that? A... Uh, no, it's a it's a USB two one. Okay. Um, it's kind of it look it's it's kind of like an Apogee Duet, but it's the it's got RME. a bunch. Of, it's got a breakout cables, doesn't it? With exactly. Lots of it, yeah. It's got a breakout cable, and it's got um it's got ADAT on it, which I thought was quite nice because it means if you do then want to like record some multi track stuff, I can chuck an Octopree in the bag as well, and then I've got my eight. Mike Breeze and just run it in ADAT. And your, um, is your sample library internal drives, or are you running it on? Uh, now I've got two uh, tiny little Weeby Tech seventy two hundred um, FireWire drives. So um, and one of them's got samples on it, and one of them is like my audio drive. Right. Um, and uh, the internal drive on the Mac as well. Um, and you have to be. Uh, you, I mean, I, I tend to be a little bit careless with um, data storage on the Mac Pro because I've got, you know six terabytes of storage internally or something daft like that so you don't really think about the fact that you just created another 30 gig of data because it will just fit somewhere um on the laptop you have to be a little bit more careful about that because because it is slightly limited but um but yeah it definitely seems to work it doesn't seem to doesn't seem to struggle with the the firewire bandwidth so far i mean in fairness i'm not running like humongous sessions on it yet Mm. um so I haven't I haven't fully tested it, and it may be that there's a point where it just falls over. But um, up till now, it's been pretty good, and I, I'm definitely I'm definitely you know I I think it's going to be increasingly important to be mobile as as um as we go forward. <laughs> oh, most definitely. So, uh, and you're working in Logic on that, presumably, pretty much uh, exclusively, right? Yeah, I tend to. I mean, I tend to use Logic mainly because the majority of the work that I do is is more in the kind of uh, writing and arranging side of things than the sort of engineering and recording side of things um and i think um 
I'm for me, Pro Tools is still the best way to record a, a multi-track session. You know, it, mm. it, it's just designed from the ground up to be that. And Logic for me is is always going to be better for sort of writing and arranging. Um, again, because I think it, it was always designed from the ground up to be that. Um, but yeah, but it, it kind of changes. I, I'll, you know, if I'm on a recording gig for a year, then I'll, I'll tend to be in Pro Tools for a year. And then I'll forget all the key commands for Logic again yeah. and get very. And then I'll have updated it, and you won't recognise the info. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, it's main. It, certainly on the on my laptop system at the moment, it's all all based around Logic. Excellent. Well, um, I, I, I'm, we're probably getting towards about an hour point. I'm sure you've probably got uh, oh. other stuff to do. But it's been absolutely fascinating um, talking to you. I mean, there's just such a breadth of stuff that you're you have uh experience of it's kind of we could go on for ages i was i in <laughs> fact um, the one thing that i wanted to finish up well, well perhaps not finish up but at least touch with was uh i noticed you also worked on this uh jackie ivancho who i believe uh, just sort of as completely separate because i mean you go from this sort of almost pure art in forms of jazz and what bjork's doing to this kind of really i can't, I can't wait to what you i can't wait to hear what you're going to say next <laughs> to pure, well pure con, constructed pop you know traditional pop which yeah. is the jackie of nice. show which yeah. is you know she's a u.s got talent uh candidate that sort of made good and you did a lot of orchestration on that i just wondered how uh you know how do, how does that how, how does it all that how does that work for you i mean that was must have been a very very tight brief presumably yeah, and that that um, came through Marius DeVries again. Um, he he is an incredibly well contacted um, producer and writer, um, and that project came up. Uh, I think in the middle of another film project that that I was working for him on, um, and this opportunity came up to to work on this project, and Marius uh, just said, "Right, let's do this." And I kind of went, "Okay, let's do this." Um, and as is so often the way with projects of that nature, it's a very fast turnaround because the the you know it, it stands or falls on whether it's available in two weeks time um so i think that that whole project i think lasted about i don't know 12 days or something Jeez. Uh, and um Did you orchestra- is that truly orchestrated or is it um sort of mid midified orchestra no no that's that's truly orchestrated um and we 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 spent maybe three or four days doing um kind of arrangements of the songs and then uh uh, I'm ba- basically how it works with Marius is is uh, he'll put together um, like a, a quite sort of detailed sketch, if you like, um, in a logic session, um, which is which has got the you know pretty much all of the uh, musical ideas there, um, and then I'll I'll sort of do some work doing things like um, uh, you know adding some guitar textures or um, uh, adding a few counter melodies, things like that. Um, on on that particular project, it, it was much more about a kind of straight, you know, full orchestration of of the song, um, and so I'll I'll do like a couple of rounds of orchestration and and send the Sibelius file back and forth a few times, and then he'll make some changes on it here and there, and get to a place where we're happy with it, and and the artist or the record company is happy with it, and then in that case we um, uh, sent it all out to um la where it was recorded and then the multi-track got sent back to london where it was mixed and then i think it got sent oh no i think it was mastered in london as well um and then you know the whole the whole project was sort of started and finished in about 12 days that is Um, astonishing because i mean they're fairly lush and 
com- I mean, to my ears, perhaps lay ears, complex, but I suppose it's a well-trodden path to a degree. I mean, did you find you were exercising orchestration muscles you hadn't uh, you hadn't had to use for a while because it's perhaps not the sort of it, it, well, I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, I I think it's um it's I think it's definitely of a style. Um, but I think you know part part of the whole drill of of trying to turn your hand to lots of different things is is being able to recognize what it is you're doing on that particular project and actually on 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 that particular project a couple of times um a couple of the sort of first attempts that i'd done for the orchestration marius would uh kind of get back on the phone to me and and sort of rein it in a little bit and say you know this isn't necessarily appropriate for what this project is um and so we we kind of uh you know made a few changes like that but um but you know broadly speaking there's n- there's nothing in there that i'm not oh yeah, yeah i wasn't no i wasn't I, that, that that wasn't what i meant it was more a question no, of, you know it's actually because it sounds very um authentic i mean if that's not do you know what i mean it's sort of it's yeah, almost, it's, um, it, it's like I, I when it's, it's like the, when um you know you, you you have something really nice to eat and you think oh that's just like you know that's just like you'd have yeah, in a restaurant it, do you know what i mean yeah. it it's it it sounds very lush very orchestral and very real yeah yeah, I think I, I and that partly touches on what we were saying earlier about about um the the sort of rules of orchestration and and the rules of anything like this is that um if you stick to certain paths then uh they they're kind of recognizable sounds to people. Um and I think that's a really important thing because ultimately people have to be able to engage in music quickly and certainly for this kind of project it it's quite a kind of yeah people need to instantly feel comfortable with it mm. um other projects where you might want to totally break the rules all the time um are the kind of projects where people just might not get it on a first listen and that's brilliant as well because uh, you know those are the kind of projects that become longer lasting and and actually you know are about you know exploring new avenues in a genre um and exploring new ways of doing sure. things uh, sometimes on a project that's just not necessarily what you want to do and you, you I, I always want to feel like in some way you're trying to bring something slightly new to the table but at the same time um you, you have to recognize what it is you've been asked to do well also um, just the ability to turn it around in that kind of time i mean i can't imagine <laughs> it just looks like a, a giant wall of of uh, you know of difficulty i mean that's an enormous uh, ask it's incredible to be able to do yeah, that so quickly it's um i th- i think that's one of one of the one of the things that i think i hopefully i'm kind of learning to do is is you know be really focused about exactly what it is i'm trying to achieve on a particular project and and part of that is to do with getting it done in the most sort of time efficient way um and you know some some sometimes that works against you because you'll and i i've had i've had situations in the past where I've I've kind of misread what the situation of a project is and done something really quickly thinking that I'm kind of helping out as it were by turning something around quickly and then end up just doing something that isn't as good as I'd like it to be um and so there's always this sort of balance of you know trying to uh trying to keep everyone happy by turning stuff around yeah. quickly and also trying to make it really good um and so so i'm particularly in in sort of media right uh, you know tv and film writing um people are just expecting things on 
on ever and ever decreasing turnarounds um, and and will ask you to do just ridiculous things by the end of play today, you know, and it's already three o'clock in the afternoon. And they're like, yeah, can you send us something by five? And you really just want to say uh, no. But, you know, a, a bigger part of you says, well, there's probably 150 people that they've got in their phone book that will give them something back by five. So you then make a decision as to whether you send them something that's kind of 75% of the way there by the end of the day, or you just don't do it at all. Um, and it's a really tough balance. And I think it's, um, it's something that, um, yeah, I'm sure it, I, it's the same in any industry, I guess. It just, it, um, you know, I, I, I started out, I guess, doing, you know, working in music for TV and stuff and, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And just in the last 12, 13 years, which isn't really a huge amount of time, the, the amount that people kind of expect you to do in a given amount of time has prob- probably like at least quadrupled. Uh, <laughs> it, it just it just seems slightly daft. But then well, at the same time, we do we are sort of blessed with the technology that enables that some, you to do it. Yeah, it enables you to do that. Um, and so in some ways, it, it I guess you could argue that it, that it sort of levels the playing field because you you can't use the technology as an excuse for for it not sounding really good. I suppose it's the, uh, you know, every, I mean, I don't think I've ever met an artist who isn't insecure about, you know, some, you know, it's that sort of feeling of like, but, but if I don't have time, I might get found out that I'm actually, I'm unable to do it at all, which is not true (laughs) because a lot of the time it's down to your instincts, isn't it? And you just instinctively know when something feels right and when it feels wrong. Exactly. It doesn't have to be the most pleasurable experience to still be good. Yes. Yeah, I, I, exactly. Exactly. And I think, um, I think that the, and I, I've been really lucky to work with a whole bunch of people that I've that I've always had a huge amount of admiration for and really sort of admired their work. And and what seems to come across more than anything, well, there, I guess there are two two things that seem to come across more than anything that that seem to um, help towards what I see as being some people's success, which is their ability just to have a good idea and their ability to communicate with people about that idea. And I think it's so, and and those are those are sort of probably the two things that are, I guess, least um, talked about on you know technology-based web forums and uh, universities, and yeah, where it's all about you have to be able to use Pro Tools, and you have to be able to put a microphone here, and you have to be able to do blah 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 blah. And actually, those are all the things that yes, they're massively important, but fundamentally, all the people that I've worked with that I really, you know, respect and have admiration for are people where all of those things are very much a secondary process. And basically, you've just got to have a good idea. Um, and, and I think those are the things where, um, you know, I, I've, I've spent hours and hours you know, on, a, on like a TV commercial worrying about whether the reverb is the right thing or not. And, and then you play it to somebody who'll listen to an MP3 on a laptop with one speaker not working. And yeah. they're just, yeah, but is the melody good? <laughs> yeah, there's no bass. Yes. yes. <laughs> Matt, yes. That's, that's, a, that's a, great, a great point to end with. I think the, the purity of the idea is, you know, is everything. So, and I think that's obviously something that you clearly have been able to achieve yourself because that's why you've had this large body of work and continue to do so. So I just want to say thank you very much well, for taking the time right. to talk to us. No problem at all. It's been a pleasure. So I want to say thanks very much again to Matt Robinson. If you want to see him in person, um, 
take a look at the Bjork website. There are various gigs coming up around the world and around Europe uh, over the next 18 months with the Biophilia Tour. Uh, Bjork.com. And what's the URL of your website, Matt? Um, I am uh, www.mattrobertsonmusic.com. There you go. And you can see what Matt's up to and what he's been up to. A very impressive body of work. Thank you very much. That was a Sonic Talk special interview with Matt Robertson.